0: Hello, welcome to episode 25 of We Don't Talk About the Weather. Uh, Different one this week. Discussion, yeah, discussion that to the uninitiated may just seem like screaming and crying. Yep. Um, We're doing a different one this week. We're actually recording this on Friday night, Mm. peak drinking hours. Mm Mm-hmm. Um... Because you're away in Edinburgh next week, so I, I won't be able to do our usual Wednesday night upload. No, um, I'm going to
1: be in Edinburgh, just generally doing the kind of things that the London metropolitan elite do, which yeah. is go to Edinburgh. All of us and not don't be see a any figure. shows,
0: just eat a load of avocados and <laughs> croissants and all the avocados.
1: Yeah, um, although I, I don't think I've ever eaten an avocado in Edinburgh. <laughs> um, but yeah, I'm, go- I'm off to Edinburgh with the family. It's our holiday, our little holiday. Our very fancy pants holiday. Um, I'm very excited. I'm going to see Simon Munnery.
0: Oh, wow. Yeah. Oh, that's
1: cool. Yep. Um, obviously, the star of Thus Spake, Sarah Fustra,
0: the pilot <laughs> on Channel 4 from the 90s. <laughs> he did, um, what's he called? Um, Simon Parker? No, no uh, Alan Parker.
1: What, the eco... The e- the,
0: Alan Parker eco-warrior. a uh, Class warrior. Yeah, class warrior. Yeah, 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 he
1: was particularly great at that. Yeah, I, I imagine he's probably not still doing that. I'll model my life on that. <laughs> but um, yeah, so we're doing a different thing tonight because we can't really. There's not really much news to talk about. There's in not the much last two news, days. and
0: we weren't going to do it on kind of topical mm. uh, topics.
1: Um, what might happen is by the time this is up, nuclear war might have happened. Might have broken out. Hopefully, fingers um, crossed. Well, the thing is, I was talking to my dad earlier, and I was like, "With nuclear war between America and Russia, the problem mm. with being in Europe is we're right in the middle. Yeah. Whereas nuclear war between America and Korea, there's only lots of America in the way and a load of Pacific islands.
0: I would say that there is significantly less America in the way than there is Korea. Yeah. But Given the well, yeah, they'll just fire massive like disparity. disparity. <laughs> they will. Here's the thing, right? They won't fire it at Guam because they can't. Nope. Do you remember like uh, a couple of years ago when North Korea was still kind well, it was of a couple joke? Of months ago, they were firing uh, no, no, into no, no. the water. But like a couple of years ago when they were doing the Taipodong missile, <laughs> 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 yeah, I know. Um, and they were like plunging into the sea just after the, after launch, and all the yeah. papers were reporting, "Oh, it's a huge failure." And then a couple of months ago, it's like they fired a missile that got halfway over the Sea of Japan <laughs> before it plunged into the sea. It's like they don't have the ability to do that thing. You say they do, but they don't. <laughs> but yeah, um, so what we're going to do is,
1: we've got, Adam's got a piece that he's been working on about Europe and the free market, yeah. and before we get into that though, just look at Remain News. Europe's very big in the news at the moment yeah, in the Remain, UK. Remain News in the last couple of days. First off, the launch of a new dating app. Yeah. Remain in Love, the dating app for the 48%.
0: Oh God. So you
1: can both, you know, (laughs) complain about Jeremy Corbyn not working hard enough for the Remain campaign as you climax. And the other thing is... I do it every night. The Premier Remain podcast, The Remaniacs, done by Ian Dunt.
0: Imagine. Like, I was nervous about setting this podcast I know. And we've got a fairly broad remit of whatever we feel like talking about. Imagine having to talk about
1: that. I know. Jesus. But, you know, Ian Dunt.
0: Yeah. Dunt
1: here. I imagine he's never felt nervous about anything. Um, But they've got merch. (laughs) The Romaniacs merch. um, Stealing the Ramones logo. So, understandably, um, the kind of radical centrist, their favourite punk band, would be the one that's racist. (laughs) The one that was led by a racist Republican. The one that was
0: first on the Spotify This Is Punk playlist. Yeah. (laughs) Probably. It probably really is. I haven't looked that up, but...
1: (laughs) Yeah, it's like, what do the kids like? The kids like punk.
0: Starts at B. Blitzkrieg Bop. Okay, yeah. (laughs) I saw it on Shrek.
1: Yeah, but yeah. So that that's Remain news.
0: <laughs> yeah, I've been kind of thinking like, there's not because it's weird because we know all of the in, like. I think most people who pay attention to pod like politics and, and things like that, they mm. know a lot about the terrain on which American politics is fought. Mm. So they know about like what states ban abortion, what's don't what don't. Yeah, they know about Black Lives Matter. You know, the death penalty. Um, the terrain of trump and and all, and all of that, but europe 's significantly closer, and most importantly for the last forty years we 've been part of it mm. so there 's kind of a not a, as much knowledge about where the single market came from, where the EU came from, what they are, and how they fit together
1: and you can 't expect the um, British. Media to give you any kind of historical context for anything. Yeah,
0: because... when I was starting this, I was looking up kind of is there some, some kind of explainer Because I, I know some stuff about mm. it, but I've never gone into it as a whole kind of string of events and mm. what it is. And there's not a lot. Like they explain the institutions or they mm. explain the history and they don't really kind of combine those. So that's what I've been trying to do over the last few mm. like, couple of months, really. Um, and like this is not it's not exhaustive in any way because it would well, take it it would take hours and hours and incredible mm. amounts of explanation so to
1: give everyone a little bit of context yeah um, a little bit of explanation of the history of it so you don't you know just go wading into it like a bbc journalist doing a story about the welsh language that comes out just exactly as like <laughs> an excerpt of some start on that. blue books Absolutely. from over a 100 fucking years ago
0: <laughs> very angry about that I
1: am very angry.
0: I'm very angry. I'm really angry about it, and I'm not Welsh in any way. I'm I'm only angry about it because
1: I'm like a homunculoid monkey. Just like in the descriptions (laughs) of the Welsh from back then as well. I imagine they still think of us as like that. Kind of jolly, jovial fellows with an IQ just slightly below that of an Englishman.
0: It's the language. It naturally makes you more angry.
1: It does. And stupider. It does. It stunted
0: my growth as a young man. (laughs) Um, but yeah, so we thought we'd go into yeah. I'd go into that. So I'm just going to start. All right. Um, so government published its EU repeal bill on the 13th of July. That's the one where they're um, going
1: to take back all the rules and then that's choose, the, pick and choose.
0: That's the snapshot of all the EU law that has come into being since we've been in the EU and has automatically gone into British law. They're going to take a snapshot of it and then they're going to go through 40 years worth of law and decide on their own if they want to get rid of it. Um, it's yeah, it's it's everything to replace the, what's called the European Communities Act, which okay. is um, that's all the that's the the thing that binds the British Parliament into accepting EU. So the
1: or, angle of the curve on a banana.
0: Uh, yeah, that's um, about 400 pages out of 600 are just the curves it, of bananas. Exhausting the shapes of apples, um, yeah. things like that. You yeah. Know? Um, so the EU is the UK's main trading forum. It contains yeah. about 500 million citizens, 20 million businesses. Eight out of the t- eight out of the UK's ten main export markets are in the EU. UK exports to the EU account for about fifty-one percent of the UK's overall export of goods and services, worth about two hundred billion. In comparison, the US accounts for about thirteen percent. Um, single largest source of imports for the UK, and it's also the main source of foreign direct investment, with about forty-nine percent in total coming from other member states.
1: Also, with it being our main source of imports, we are an importing country.
0: Uh, yeah, Britain as the first industrial country, one of the things you have to do as an industrial country is you have to get people off the land and stop doing agriculture. Mm. So a lot of the food for the past 200, 250 years has been imported. Yeah, first um, from
1: the colonies and now from Europe.
0: Yeah, well, I mean, because a lot from the Europe as well. Like mm. it's, it's understated, but yeah, definitely the colonies were a kind of source of, of mm. uh, things. This is why we have bananas. Bananas are not considered like a foreign fruit, like that, um was it, the Dan Hannon... Uh, not Dan Hannon, James... Um, Bloodworth? Uh, no, no, what's his name? Uh, the anti-climate change guy. Um, Delingpole. Delingpole, that's the one. So uh, yes. it's why we consider bananas not foreign fruit, and, but we consider dragon fruit. Bananas aren't a foreign fruit. There's um, a banana tree in, I think it's in Kensington Gardens? There is now.
1: Um, yeah, but um, most bananas that we have are a clone of that one yes, tree. Yes, absolutely, yeah.
0: But they were cloned, exported. <laughs> yeah, I, I I'm you just, know. it's know, it's an imperial relationship. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. yeah,
1: you know, you can't grow a banana tree like in your garden in Berkshire. Mm, mm. I do know someone who's doing that.
0: Um, but kind of going back and looking into the kind of origins of it... Um, to understand the class nature of the EU and the single market, it's necessary to consider its historical origins. Yeah. So there are a lot of different views about where the EU came from, what its momentum was, what, it, what its impetus was some people say oh it's a, been a socialist project from the start it's a social democratic project some people will say oh it's bankers it's a purely capitalist thing it was the Germans it was the French trying to protect their farms and what it actually was it was founded by refugees from Sodom and Gomorrah okay. under blood contract to the elders of Zion hmm. um, coming together to build a modern day Tower of Babel Don't in which all the, the languages BBC. all the languages were combined and ah. it was set up to be in front of God and that's where Esperanto comes from yes that might be my notes for another podcast. Okay, so very different.
1: <laughs> um, well, obviously, because it makes sense because the five points of the European Star. Yep. is It's like Bazoozoo. Yeah. As
0: Azazel, Moloch. Um, shit. <laughs> oh no, let's just shove oh well, th- I used to know this.
1: <laughs> oh, let's just shove shub niggerf. Shub <laughs> niggerf,
0: the alathotep. <laughs> yeah.
1: yeah. <laughs> All the good ones. Um,
0: so kind of. In 1941, um, a couple of... In reality. In in reality.
1: (laughs) Not just in the minds of crazy religious people who phone up LBC in the middle of the night. In
0: 1941, two anti-fascist intellectuals, Ernesto Rossi and Altiero Spinelli, Mm
2: -hmm. were
0: placed under arrest on the Italian island of Ventotene, and there wrote a manifesto for a free and united for a free and united Europe, against nationalism, for solidarity, cooperation, and respect for cultural plurality. Didn't, plurality. didn't grab you right while he was in prison? Is that um, he did,
1: yes. So Italians just yeah. write, do all their political um, writings in prison.
0: It's not it's not an entirely um, unknown thing. Like yeah. it since the age of the European Enlightenment and the and European imperialism intellectuals every now and again flirt with a kind of united European... Like, pan yeah. Europeanism. Sometimes it's based on race um, or culture or kind of Christendom, something Hops- like that.
1: Hobsbawm... Hobsbawm was very, was very much in favour of...
0: Hobsbawm would be it? in favour of... I mean, I imagine would he would come. be in favour of it because he was a refugee from um, the Austro-Hungarian Empire in Germany, yeah. kind of lived through the Second World War. There were, It was a common kind of feeling after yeah. the Second World War that obviously all these nations had gone to war and had been at war... So much over the kind of... Between the First World War and Second World War Whoa, that... For so long, just look at our tapestries. Oh, yeah, exactly. Um, that some kind of united Europe... It, you, it, stems from, it stems from different places, either kind of a united industrial class, proletariat consciousness, or, you know, uni- like I say, united Christendom, or united white people. Hmm. All of that kind of stuff. It comes from a lot of places. Um, as an example, like, same time that these, uh, these two Italians were um, imprisoned on... Um, this island, writing this manifesto. There's a Cognac salesman, a French Cognac salesman called Jean Monnet, um, who was a kind of banker, financier, League of of Nations official, who was um, helping to engineer the Franco-British Union between Hmm. de Gaulle and Churchill. Something that's not mentioned that much in the really kind of over-patriotic coverage of Churchill is that actually, during the war, France and Britain were two united countries yeah. for the sake of, like you had the Free the free French Army under de Gaulle hmm. and the, the, the British Commonwealth were united as one. So something that, right, conservatives don't tend to be too keen to emphasise that. Weird. Hmm. Um, yeah, Churchill even announced, um, uh, hard as it is to say now, I look forward to a United States of Europe in which the barriers between the nations will be greatly minimised and unrestricted travel will be possible. Again, coming at it from a Kind of cultural, race yeah. perspective as he was as he was wont to do.
1: Yeah, well, um, you know, I imagine. Um, so you know, you could travel all around Europe, and but you know, subjugating still the
0: Irish. <laughs> oh yeah, no, outside of Europe, anything was game. Yeah, you know, you could shoot at Germans in Tanganyika, <laughs> but you shouldn't shoot at Germans. That's just impolite to do it to the do right it. across the Rhine. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> now a lot of this has been taken by kind of the hardcore anti-EU right. Um, who prefer the explanation that it was like a cabal of evil kind of left-wing socialists and intellectuals who's plotted together and influenced... It's the, it's the Jewish conspiracy. Yeah, it's, it's, you know, it's the
1: eu the USSR. Something
0: that's bad is interior to the country or the, the polity that you're talking about, and it influences it in bad directions, hmm. through not through martial vigour, which is what they like, but through kind of evil politics and subverting the natural order of things. They
1: trick you with their big words rather than their big guns.
0: Yeah, exactly, yeah. Um, They kind of treat it like a a cabal that either kind of distorted, or even if they're in in, in favour of kind of a broadly European... Uh, pan-Europeanism they think that these people either distorted or invalidated the European project Yeah, you know they repeat the names it's like oh well there's a thousand YouTube videos on it like did you know that the found all the founders of the EU were actually Nazis and it's a plot um, if you take but they- the first letters
1: of all their names it spells out <laughs> Nazis rule lol <laughs>
0: Um, but yeah, they repeat the names like it 's like the cabal they want to exercise, yeah, but of course we 're not like that we no. don't we don 't look at names of proper historians and proper marxists mm. don 't look at names, big individuals, like great people of history, you mm. look at um uh groups, classes, institutions, like political things like that, you yeah know? um but yeah, suffice to say that at the end of world war two there 's this motley crew of kind of pre war Social Democrats, technocrats, businessmen, liberal-minded, communists even, mm. um, who, out of a intellectual, personal fear of the future for the European continent, um, were putting together various utopian plans about what it would be to have a united Europe. Yeah. Almost all of these plans mutated or changed in some way, eventually, to reflect the class interests of post-war elites. Um it's not that a European project of this kind was thought up in whole cloth by the European ruling class, but that out of the end of the the war and competing ideas about what Europe would look like, this was one they could agree to and didn't quite impinge on their national interests quite as much as any of the others. Um... So up until now, the nation-state system had provided the national bourgeoisies with huge economic and social benefits through imperialism. Yeah. So you go to another country, you set up a system whereby their national um, bodies and governments are subordinated to your own, and you can influence their economies like that. So you get kind of all the primary goods you need, all the coal, um, steel. What we talked fruit, about in the last episode. We've set
1: up cash crops in each country.
0: Yeah. Absolutely, you know, you get your cotton in and whatever, and then you make it and then you sell it on for a larger profit, yeah. which brings in cash, which yeah. allows you to further build your, your particular sustain your particular class. Um, but the problem is with the First World War and Second World War, all of that kind of intra-class competition had brought the continent to the brink of collapse. Mm. In addition, just after the war, you've got a very large militarized Soviet Union to contend with as an example of an alternative system. Um, for the first time since they the Europeans had started reaching out to other countries and conquering other peoples you actually had an alternative system to the one that they had yeah. brought into the brought into being that could actually compete with them and that they, they couldn't subvert they couldn't kind of militarily, militarily or or socially yeah. you know and they had a lot of people in their own countries who were looking to the Soviet Union as a mm. kind of that's that's kind of the thing we want to do. Yeah. Um And, of course, they were financially ruined. I mean, you look at Western Europe now and you think, oh, well, you know, Western Europe, America, they're part of the big countries of the world. Mm. They're the economically most powerful ones. But after the war, it wouldn't necessarily have been like that. Like, since the war, I think the Western European economy grew about 4% annually. But it wasn't always the case. Mm. Between 1913 and 1950, Western European economies had grown at an average of just 0.8% per annum. Um, and only slightly higher between 1870 and 1913. Um, they had, the Industrial Revolution had not brought the kind of growth that they would have expected. No. Um, despite what the kind of EU's biggest fans and their harshest critics saying about it wasn't about transforming the soul of Europe. It was about ensuring competitiveness to replace the imperial markets that they were yeah. about to lose. Um, these kind of plans, they the electorates weren't. I mean, they were de- nom, there were a lot of nominally democratic countries. You know, mm. the UK and France were certainly, and Germany after the war were democratic countries. But yeah, was people. The populaces weren't consulted on this idea, which is you know one part where I kind of agree with the anti-EU mm. um, people. They weren't consulted, but I don't think it's I don't think it's exceptional or intentional that it was like that. It was just like it was the traditional style that politics had well, been yeah, it was done. Too-
1: bigger thing to discuss with people yeah, to with people. yeah. especially
0: yeah. after a war in which they you know spent all of their blood and treasure mm. and people had many many people had died fighting those same people yeah you know it was a lot to ask and there is a certain element of like it's a traditional aristocratic style to kind of n- to make these plans and decide that they were better for people than yeah. the thing that had gone before I mean you know you didn't consult George Marshall On the Marshall Plan or Bismarck on the kind of peace um, after the Franco-Prussian War, he didn't consult Metternich after the Napoleonic Wars when those Mm. peace treaties were going on. They were continuing a tradition, I think. Yeah. Um,
1: So, like, like the point of it wasn't to like make everyone pan-European loveliness. It was because after the war, there was no way we can compete economically or militarily with America or Russia. Yeah. So we have to band together because we, all we have is corpses and mud.
0: You've got to look at like the idea that was going around, which was Europe should never go to war again. Yes. That another war should never happen and at the same time that also being in the interests of um ruling elites in Europe because you can have the idea but without the um actual class interests it's never going to happen. Mm. You know? Um Yeah, for unaligned Europeans and intellectuals, you kind of had a a, a kind of vague notion of pan-Europeanism, the hope of Europe as a kind of third force balancing out um, Mm. Europe and uh, the US and the USSR, um, independent of them having a strong economy on their own. Mm. And like I say, this kind of appealed to socialists who were not necessarily aligned with the USSR, and it appealed to right-wingers who saw the kind of, well europe has this historic mission it's the cradle of civilization all that kind of shit yeah um, the us kind of were interested in keeping europe on its feet because obviously it's right next to the ussr yeah um, and they wanted to over to they
1: want, kind of a,
0: us in a they, want a, they want a, a buffer between the kind of warsaw the warsaw pact states as mm. they would become and uh, and the rest of europe they just wanted that kind of thing propped up um, they also wanted a strong market of consumers because mm. there's nobody in Africa at that point there's nobody in Africa China mm. Japan who are buying their goods their suddenly, advanced industrial goods
1: suddenly they've got the best car manufacturers or well, the only car manufacturers yeah. in the world but there's no one to buy them yeah unless you know you sell to Europeans
0: and then there's the only people who are likely to have paved roads are going to be Europeans they're mm. certainly the easiest to sell to mm. so you know that kind of thing um the uh, the French and the Germans, obviously having come, across, come after this catastrophic war, France want to be able to pull together the resources of European capitalism in order to counterbalance US power. De Gaulle was particularly anti-American um strengthen the the ability of France to hold on to what it had left of its empire. Algeria remember slightly differently from the British empire Algeria was considered part of France. It was considered yeah. like a county mm. of France even though it was across the sea the Mediterranean in Africa it was considered part of it. So they have kind of a closer cultural tie to mm. the think the pieces of land that they conquered. Yeah. Um Germany, they want to rebuild their shattered kind of industrial base. They want to make sure that fascism never reser- ne- never rises again. Mm. And they want to be able to do that without France stepping in constantly to say, you seem to be building a lot of iron. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Um, crucially, the US assumed responsibility for the security of Western Europe, given that it's the Cold War and they fear the USSR. Yeah. Um, They formed NATO in 1949, and the USR seemed to be at that point happy to pay for a massive army that keeps the Soviet Union at bay.
2: Hmm.
0: Um, So, um, yeah, so this group of kind of visionaries kind of ended up laying out a plan of linking up sectors of the economy and unifying a kind of European army. Hmm. Um, What they got. They started off with the European Coal and Steel Community, which was a single market free of trade barriers set up for just steel and coal. And basically, all the steel and a lot of the steel and coal in um, Europe comes from the Ruhr Valley, which was coal from the Ruhr Valley goes into Germany to power the um, factories that smelt the steel. Yeah, like it's fairly like that. Um, They placed the Ruhr under shared control and guaranteed the supply of coal extracted in France to the German steel industry. External relations between the European coal and steel industry and other nations were conducted through the ECSE, and the industry was regulated by both governments. Um, Because fundamentally it was about ensuring economic growth without stepping on any of their neighbours' toes, um, coal and steel were not exactly... um, growth sectors in the 20th century no. by the 20th century we pretty much you can pretty much extract all of the value you can out of coal yeah it's not quite as you know important as you know, oil
2: yeah. <laughs>
0: which is coming into the economy at that point um, again steel you have as much steel as you can produce it yeah. goes to rebuild buildings but if you have concrete at the same time yeah. that's not quite as necessary it's not It's not exactly a growth industry. Mm. Um, But the original architects kind of wanted to proceed from this into other kind of economic sectors to transport and energy. Atomic energy was one of the other Mm. uh, agencies that was set up just afterwards. And this was always talked about in the same breath as a European army, like a shared army, basically a shared French and German army. Mm. Um, The Dutch, Belgian and Luxembourgian governments, um, they've been flattened by two world wars. Yeah. Um, they're not that keen about building up military uh, capacity no. again. No in point. between, <laughs> you know, in between them, especially when, you, like I say, you've got the US kind of covering covering their backs. Mm. Um, um, with the US and USSR holding overwhelming military superiority, abatted elite and populists, and declining empires, resurgent fascism was a proper yeah. fear. Um, as far as liberals were concerned, it was the privations that came from ha- not having a good, strong economy that led to Nazism, and that would be their best defence against the Soviet Union. It's a thing that bribing like, their populace. What basically. is
1: the thing? Is people tend to forget, it's like the 40, the like late forties and early fifties, there were still lots of fascists around. Oh yeah, huge. Even um,
0: even after the war, yeah. It's
1: absolutely. Like Vidal it soon after the war mm. in London, he was cutting up fascists.
0: Yeah, I mean, even even aside from Germany, I mean France, Britain. You mm. were talking about a social movement that didn't just come from nowhere. It wasn't mm. some kind of disease. It came from the privations of the, of the Great Recession and mm. or oh, the Great Depression and all that kind of stuff. Um, so they were worried about that. Um, the Benelux countries proposed something called um, the Bayon Plan, which was a customs union with the institutions and architecture to plan economic policies, reduce trade barriers, and, fu- and a fund to mitigate some of the harmful effects of trade liberalisation. So, as you drop those barriers, some goods are going to become unaffordable, um, some goods are going to become cheaper, which means that the capitalists running them are going to have to cut wages and jobs in order to become so
1: uh, then you're going to need, competitive. You're going to need to subsidise them, otherwise, everyone's going to start getting yeah. hungry again.
0: Uh, everyone's going to start getting hungry and everyone's going to start throwing up uh, swastikas and throwing up right arms, yeah. goose stepping. Um, in 1957, this became something called the Treaty of Rome, which was the first kind of big EEC, European Union mm. treaty. Um, It established the European Atomic Energy Community, the European Economic Community. Uh, Tariffs and most trade quotas would be reduced over the subsequent four years. Additionally, it committed member states to facilitating the free movement of persons, services and capital. So that's the original kind of agreement. They just Mm. said, we will do this. Um, These kind of ideas have come up before, but the European countries after the war were not, the great power, nineteenth-century big imperialist monsters mm. that conducted trade negotiations. Then um, they'd the post-war elites in those countries had come to, as as we've said, had come to favour kind of more state intervention into the economy. It's a way of shoring up a kind of very fragile capitalism. It's also a way of mitigating the worst consequences and preventing people falling to either communism or fascism. Mm. Um, In the treaty, signatories vowed to ensure the application of the principle of equal remuneration between men and women workers, paid holiday schemes, and collaboration between member states in the social field, particularly in matters pertaining to employment, labour legislation, occupational training, social security, protection against occupational accidents and diseases, industrial hygiene, and trade union law. In addition, they set up a social fund to deal with trade-induced social dislocation, which included language that led to a massive transfer policy to support farmers and agricultural workers which became the common agricultural policy. So yeah, they're trying to mitigate the, what they feel that they have to do to remain competitive against yeah. the US and
1: USSR. Why British farmers get subsidised mm-hmm. because they can't compete. And yeah. why it was stupid for them to vote to leave? the EU. <laughs> really bad.
0: <laughs> um, so you've got a kind of basic agreement on how the, economy, the European economy is going to look. But actual integration between the economies was pretty slow. Between mm-hmm. the 57 and the mid-80s, That's big thing. Yeah, there was kind of a smattering of developments that inched towards it. So, yeah, like I say, the common agricultural policy, quota reductions, um, the EEC kind of expands to incorporate Denmark, the UK, Ireland, Greece... West Germany's export engine provided a growing market for manufactured goods produced by its neighbours. The formation of the EEC also offered a stronger institutional framework for all of this uh, increased activity and allowed national governments to effectively construct welfare states in a Keynesian economic policy which sought to maintain um, effective demand in pursuit of full employment. So that's what they're looking at. They want full employment. They're so scarred by what's happened during the war. They want everybody to be happy little Hmm. social democrats. Um, the British ruling class had always been kind of ambivalent about European integration um, there are probably many reasons for that psychological historical ge- I mean geographical the fact that it's an island Yeah. but mainly that they'd been in charge of half of the world and had tried to disengage with Europe shared. as much as has been possible I mean they fought with Europe enough over the la- intervening 500 years mm. 1,000 years if anything um, and yeah post-war Labour and Tory governments remained aloof they kind of still fell back on the empire. I mean, India had gone, the African countries had gone. Although most of those went in the early '60s, mm. they were kind of had this conceit that they were the third. They were the third world power. Yeah. They were the balance. I know Churchill certainly had that mm. um, conceit that Britain was the third world power and that everyone would respect him. And then, you know, the post World War II treaty periods, no one gave a shit. Yeah. No one gave a shit. Um, you have the Suez Crisis in 1956. Um, short thing, um, Britain had owned Egypt. A military governor took over in Egypt, um, Abdul Nasser, uh, looked to take over the Suez Canal, which had been bit, built by British and French money hmm. um, after kind of decolonisation. He posted troops there. The British and French gathered a fleet to sail in and take the Suez Canal back militarily. The US said no, and they had to stop. Mm. So that's kind of the end of the idea that the British and French imperial powers can just act the way they want.
1: And just a little right? thing, in case you don't know what the Suez Canal is, because I mm. know my wife doesn't. Um, it's a little canal between yeah. that's like in Egypt between the Indian Ocean?
0: It's a way of getting from... Like, uh, I mean, it's, it's, way the from red, getting, it's, the, it's the Red Sea that yeah. feeds into the Indian it's Ocean. It's a way of
1: getting from East Africa into the Mediterranean,
0: uh, it's, yeah, it's a way of getting... Without having a, yeah. to go
1: all the way around Africa. Yes. And Africa's pretty yeah. big.
0: You think of the umbilical cord between Africa and Turkey. Yeah. It's like cuts through all that. So you yeah. don't have to go all the way around Africa. I know that my motioning around <laughs> this invisible map really helps viewers <laughs> on a podcast, listeners on a podcast. So that's why I'm doing it. <laughs> but yeah, it's a, it, it it's a huge...
1: You can cut through so you don't have to go via, like, Cape Town. Yeah,
0: which you can imagine why the British would have that attitude towards, yeah, we really need a faster way to get to India. Yeah. Yeah, it cuts, it cuts the time by months. Yeah. By sea. So after the Suez Crisis, um, British governments had tried to apply for membership of the EEC, mm-hmm. um, but had been denied by de Gaulle, who <laughs> was, in addition to being anti-American, was very anti-British, hmm. um, and saw them as kind of an American fifth column. Because they had aligned themselves with the U.S. very closely, the special relationship and all that, yeah. and he saw that as a kind of threat to an independent Europe. It's like, well, it's just the Americans trying to get in to break us all yeah. up and that kind of thing. Britain
1: looked just Charles de Gaulle reckoned that Britain would just turn up and then bitch solidly and expect special treatment the entire time, and then if they could, what just set the whole thing on fire at the end <laughs> and run away. What a fool! He's like, I think that might be one of the few things I completely agree with Charles de Gaulle on
0: me of Charles de Gaulle in a, a number of ways I don't have the hat True. the moustache you could get the hat or the though. French <laughs> um, yeah, so... don't
1: trust the British or yeah. the Americans <laughs>
0: it was right Yeah. yeah. Um, so this kind of economic agreement I suppose you could describe the early EEC as um, they yeah. removed tariff barriers but you still couldn't trade between countries because you had things like non- non-tariff barriers hmm. so national technical rules so um you could say that well if any toaster is going to be sold in france it has to be a certain wattage and if you don't produce that for your domestic market in the us you're not exporting those same toasters to the french hmm. these were mostly designed kind of on purpose to make sure that you didn't have a say an influx of toasters into the us that would into the into france that would kind of damage french domestic producers hmm. right so these barriers kind of mean that the common market, as such, the EC existed, but the single market didn't. Okay. Not in any real term. Um, just a break, off. I don't want to get this too economist y, but um, just to define a couple of things. Um, a free trade area is. Um, One where there's no tariffs or quotas on trade between specific countries, Um, you can include services in that. Most free trade areas don't provide for free movement of labour or capital, so you can just export your goods. It's usually a kind of bilateral agreement, so Mm. you agree with one other country, I'm going to keep exporting my electrical goods to you and you won't fuck it up for me by slapping a massive tax on it when it comes in customs duties. But you don't get to move people around. You don't get to move people and so you like don't NAFTA. Get, and yeah, and you don't get to move money hmm. as well. Um, and that's one of the big things. So you might you, it might seem easier to set up a factory in the country and manufacture your product, but you won't be able to move any of the money back to your home country. Okay. So stuff like that. Um, a customs union is a bit more advanced from that you can impose a common tariff on imports coming from outside this particular union um and it's to prevent any one member agreeing a better deal with a non-member so you haven't got one country doing a load of bilateral deals with um other countries like we're trying to do now so you can't have
1: um, what, you can't have like britain corner the market on avocados by making a sneaky deal with mexico
0: absolutely yeah that's exactly what it is yeah you can't have one member um Kind of, well, I've got an agreement with all of my neighbouring countries, but uh, France really needs avocados, so I'm going to go to buy a load in Kenya. Do Kenyans grow avocados? Um, I think they do grow in East Africa. Yeah. I think they do. So you couldn't do another deal with somebody outside the customs union and then go, well, I've got these at a much cheaper price. Well, we
1: had basically. to stop buying New Zealand lamb when we joined up. Um, yes,
0: yes, yeah, yeah. Well, we had Perfect.
1: to stop trading with the Commonwealth mm. separately.
0: Mm -hmm. Um, so buying and selling across those borders within the customs union is a lot easier Hmm. um, since businesses know that if their products meet standards in one area Hmm. that they can also be sold elsewhere so there's a kind of harmonisation that goes on there so you say okay if I've got a particular wattage again return to toasters if I've got a particular wattage Hmm. that the toaster that I produce, I know that I can go to all of the other countries in my customers. And, and they'll allow it in because yeah. it will be perfect for what they need it for. You know? And they won't be able to put up any fake barriers. Like it's got to have three uh like pins. Pins, yeah. yeah. Like that Well I mean like th- well, you know, like a toaster that has like three it can get three slices of bread in.
1: What kind of monster? To- toaster would have three. Yeah,
0: exactly. But that's the kind of thing that they would they would um put up.
1: Though I thought you can get a one slice toaster and um in God, Lewis.
0: imagine being the person buying that. Is there like a klaxon that goes off that says Lonely man"?
1: <laughs> you could also buy toasters specifically for the size of Warburton's bread. Now <laughs> Which that, actually, like...
0: that actually kind of would be useful. My girlfriend loves the Warburton's toasty uh, bread. She will not eat anything it's else. it's too tall. It's tall, but it's very, very small.
1: Mm. But yeah the, yeah, the Lonely toaster. <laughs> yeah.
0: Um, so then you've got the third type. Okay. which is what eventually comes in, which is a single market. Okay. As well as tariffs and quotas, it removes various other barriers to trade. So member countries agree to harmonise product standards on like booze strength, um, fuel efficiency in cars. Um, they, use, they do that across their markets. Otherwise, that could be used to restrict trade. Again, mm-hmm. what we were saying before. Um, there's one example of, in the 70s, there was something called the Casson di, Cassis de Dijon case, <laughs> Which is a blackcurrant liqueur that you pair with um, champagne or sparkling wine, has an alcohol content of about fifteen to twenty percent. And West German legislation required fruit liqueurs to have an alcohol of alcohol limit of uh, at least twenty five percent if you were going to sell it as a fruit liqueur. Because the idea was that if it was fruity, it was appealing to kids. But if it was too strong, it wouldn't appeal to kids. <laughs> like that
1: was the rule. Well, you know, kids like to maintain a buzz. <laughs> yep. They don't just like to get smashed. Like Kids are very
0: sensible when it comes to booze, I find.
1: Um. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, it's why they drink back in 2020. Yeah.
0: <laughs> but, like, clearly this was... I mean, OK, it was probably engineered for something like schnapps and to prevent underage drinking. Yeah. But ultimately it was kind of one of those finickety little barriers that stopped the French exporting their liqueurs to, to Germany. Yeah. There was actually a court case. Um, the company took the West German government to court... Um, and the court ruled in the company's favour, they used that ruling, that specific ruling, Mm. to then free up all of the other kind of laws, national laws, that prevented products of any kind going to um, other countries. That's Mm. like, weirdly enough, that's like the thing that they depended on until like 1997 or something like that. That one ruling, you know how in courts they refer to the judgment of, you know, whatever? That was the one that they used. Um, but I mean other than that there wasn't like much there wasn't really much impetus towards a proper codified single market until mm-hmm. the 80s um, then across the vista of history came a great hero
2: okay
0: striding across national boundaries as if they made nothing yeah committed to a pan European single continent ideal Nick Clegg a future of I croissants Nick Clegg. <laughs> schnapps and gesturing wildly with your hands. All the things that Europeans love. That hero yep. was not Nick Clegg. It was Margaret Thatcher. <laughs> that makes of sense. all the things you know about Margaret Thatcher, European Union hero, <laughs> founding hero is not one that you necessarily think not of. Not really. No. Um, so, like most things, um, Thatcher was suspicious and nationalistic when it came to Europe. she used uncompromising and provocative rhetoric regarding European integration she wanted rebates on British contributions to the EEC which she got in 1984 by shouting loudly I want my money back over (laughs) our garden fence Um, she wanted increased neoliberal cuts by hollering we have not successfully rolled back the frontiers of the state in Britain just to see them reimposed at a European level And she said no to an increase in federalism. She just said no, no, no over and over again <laughs> in a speech. I've, I'm not making those quotes up. Those are things that she, you know she said. Um, so her idea was she sent a successful businessman and former member of her own cabinet, Lord Cock, Lord Cockfield. That's right. That's a great. <laughs> She sent him to Brussels to work as a commissioner responsible for advancing the of of the market. The idea okay. had been boiling away but nobody had really done anything because everyone was really successful up until the late 70s. You know, yeah. They were selling all their goods all across the world. Mm. Everything, oil was cheap. All that kind of stuff. Um, Cockfield was not regarded as particularly a Euro enthusiast. The general view in London was that Thatcher had sent a dour and elderly Euro sceptic to clip the EEC's wings. Um, <laughs> imagine sending, I suppose, yeah, imagine sending someone like Tim Martin... Or um, Nigel Farage to <laughs> Europe, you know, ex businessman, s- like sour-faced, way-faced, <laughs> the colour of porridge, yeah. a sickly demeanour. Visits prostitutes on the weekend. I don't think I don't know if any of them actually do that. Just to but they avoid give off the, that air, just to avoid the libel, the slander. <laughs> the but s- the scent of a, <laughs> you know, the kind of businessman. Yeah. yeah. Um. So she sends him to take up a role in you. the kind of yeah in the EEC structure. Um, it would be insane, otherwise, to think that someone like Nigel Raj would go to Europe and become enamoured with it. <laughs> That's exactly what Lord Cockfield did, um, yeah. because he's a businessman. And when he sees what kind of profits they can make from shipping goods and shipping people across national boundaries, he fucking loves it. Yeah. He absolutely fell in love with it. He produces a white paper in 1985 listing nearly 300 barriers, ranging from technical standards and health regulations to public purchasing options... Um, which needed to be abolished if they wanted to make a genuine single market. Against every barrier was set what needed to be done and a timetable, and he got all the European countries to agree to it individually, like the European governments.
1: Because they would, because...
0: Because they like
1: it. Basically, he turned up and went, look at this, we could be super rich. I know we're
0: pretty rich, but... Can you imagine? (laughs) Yeah. You'd be technically correct in thinking that this is what free market, noted free market enthusiast Margaret Thatcher wanted. Yeah, but of course she came to free market economics late. Um, she yeah. actually didn't know really what neoliberalism was when it was codified by like Friedman and Hayek and all that kind of thing. Hmm. She didn't really—I don't think she ever really understood it. She saw it as a kind of national club to beat her enemies with, like domestically. Yeah, you know. Um, and she was always a probably a hyper patriotic, hyper nationalist politician before she was a free market politician. Yeah. Um, and this time, the nationalist kind of devils on her shoulder were they were the ones whispering into her ear. Um, she was furious with Cockfield. She had to agree to a legally binding treaty, an intergovernmental conference to draw up plans for the single market, and even had to agree to the principle of monetary cooperation, which meant uh, freeing up the exchange rate mm. mechanism. And um, eventually, a single currency. She set that... She started the ball rolling. She started the ball rolling by saying, yes, the British government agreed to this. Hmm. You wouldn't think it, would you? Um, Yeah, she clashed with Cockfield quite quite harshly. Um, Shortly after the publication of the White Paper, Cockfield explained that the harmonisation of indirect taxation was deliberately specified in the Treaty of Rome. There followed this dialogue recounted in his book, The European Union Creating the Single Market. Thatcher, it was not. Cockfield, it was. Thatcher, it was not. Cockfield, it was. <laughs> a private secretary was then asked to fetch a copy of the treaty. Cockfield asked him to read out Article 99, the commission to so present proposals for the harmonisation of indirect taxes. Thatcher was silent. After his first four years, she sacked him. <laughs> Cockfield was bitterly disappointed but made no complaint. <laughs> so yeah, Thatcher was a central architect of what became the Single European Act, passed in 1986, That was the first big change to the Treaty of Rome. So now you've got a principle of they're going to form a single market, right? So with this new single market, it's also adapting to changing circumstances outside the EU. So you've got the all the empire has all the empires have pretty much gone. Um, you have kind of the arrangements as we detailed a couple of episodes ago between like France and their African colonies, Britain and its African colonies. It still invests a huge amount in like mineral extraction and things mm-hmm. like that. But also increasingly, these companies are becoming international. Mm-hmm. They're not like taking diamonds from um, African mines and selling them in Britain, and then the British are putting a customs duty on them. They're selling them on the international market, which the single market fits into this quite well. It's globalisation. You may have heard of it. Mm. Um, Investment, production, and consumption across global lines, but also kind of hovering above global lines. Mm -hmm. It never settles in one place. This Mm. is the beginning of of that kind of thing in Europe. Um, It's facilitated by a service elite, uh, a governmental elite and enabled by the dropping of national barriers to capital and products. Allowing investment to flow globally to wherever had the most competitive wages, the best operating environment for capital, was vital to eroding the power of organised labour and started reordering the old and new member governments into cores and peripheries. Um, So we ended up leading to the treaties in Maastricht in 1992, moved on to monetary union, Um, the commitment to a single currency, the Amsterdam, Nice and Lisbon treaties consolidated and kind of outlined the EU's governmental framework.
1: That brings us up into the 90s.
0: So that brings us up to kind of modern day. Um, The single market guaranteed freedom of goods, services, labour and capital. As part of belonging to this system, member states got access to and the ability to influence the procedures by which the governing principles and its laws were made. Mm. Um, they contributed to mem- members to the European Commission, their MEPs sit in the European Parliament, and their governments are represented on the European count- the Council of Europe, as mm. it was called. Um, they submitted to the judgments of the European Court of Justice, which made sure that all the harmonised body of law is correctly implemented, mm. so you don't have one... Government deciding something in its courts that is then contradicted by another country—that's originally designed to prevent to allow this kind of flow of capital and products across national borders. It's not there to
1: be nice; it's there to make sure. It's it's
0: literally starts with the with the needs of capitalist of the capitalist bourgeoisie. It's not designed to make anything fairer. The fact that fairness came along with it is just because that was the flavour of social democratic countries at that time. Um. So the introduction of the single market um, marked a shift in the EEC towards more neo- neoliberal policies. It got rid of non-tariff barriers, like that Cassis de Dijon case we heard about earlier. It came at a time when multinational corporations were starting to make themselves a political as well as an economic force. The dismantling of non-tariff barriers established rights for multinational corporations, deploying the talent and resources of the foremost international law firms to escape and undermine national economic regulation. Remember how the Treaty of Rome had many social democratic provisions in it? All that stuff about a commitment Wages, to
1: holidays. trade
0: unions, holidays, equalising pay—all of that stuff was Treaty of Rome stuff because mm. that was the flavour of capitalism at the time. Mm. Um, labor, the labour movement was strong at that point because yeah, it's like they like post-war of the consensus, Union. Oh, that kind of... post-war consensus welfare states. Yeah,
1: but so we're in like, a different time then now.
0: Um, Trade unions were directly inserted back then into decision-making forums alongside government bureaucrats and business representatives. Working-class people could hold governments to account through democratic practices accessed much more freely than mm. they would eventually be. There were some mechanisms to keep capitalism line on a national level, yeah. more or less. Like You can't overstate the case. You can't say that the working class have ever been in a position of power. No. But this was certainly, in those countries, the most power that the working class had ever wielded. Yeah. Certainly. Um, this all began to change in the 70s and 80s. Um, the boom that had fueled the ability to fund social democratic welfare states ended. Following the oil shock of 74 and the associated crises, capitalists looked to cut wages and jobs to ensure their bottom line. As the social compact, the, the welfare state, was eroded on a national scale, the evolving EEC could now be shaped directly not only by neoliberals in national governments, but in the European Commission itself, because it's got its own elected body, it's now subject to the same kind of pressures that any national government is. Hmm. Um, The new single market meant that it wasn't just easier to physically move. It was easy... Not only was it easier to physically move if the economic or political conditions around your intended intended destination changed, it would actually be illegal for you to suffer a loss if you moved into a territory and then the conditions changed that meant your bottom line was affected, your profit was affected. So
1: that's, like, why it looks like as soon as we leave Europe, the government's going to get sued
0: massively. Yeah. Say you're a Chinese firm wanting to invest in a healthcare business in Britain. Yeah. If the British government decided to abolish private contracts in the NHS, the company could sue for commercial damages because the free because of the principle of free movement in mm. goods and services. Um, this is actually built into a lot of different treaties, um, even the kind of bilateral ones that we mentioned in mm. the in the beginning. But this is enshrined in the EU. This is a core part of what the single market it's is. one of the
1: reasons why leftists... In gen- like, where a lot of the anti-EU it's, stuff... It's, leftists one of, for- it's
0: one of the key kind of, yeah, left-wing yeah. anti-EU. I want to nationalise
1: like, my trains. I can't nationalise my yeah. trains because I'm going to be sued for nationalising mm-hmm. my choo
0: choos. Yeah. And no government has ever had the kind of courage to fight those kind of yeah. legal battles. They would rather avoid them. Mm. Um, so, I mean... None of this really affects how you feel about the EU on its own. It just helps to kind of broaden what we actually talk about when we talk about being anti-EU.
2: Yeah.
0: We're not anti-EU because no. we have a problem with like cosmopolitanism or the idea of other countries of experiencing other countries, hmm. but because it's not it's not the their otherness that actually is at the core of the EU. No. The core of the EU is not a cultural melting pot of nations. No. The core of the EU is a capitalist force to undermine, um, to to do capitalist business, basic, business basically, yeah, basically to facilitate a particular capitalist class, which was you know instrumental in its founding and mm. yeah that kind of thing, um yeah, what fashioned the current EU was broad movements within the capitalist ruling class. The original kind of cabal of European utopians envisioned a roughly social social democratic federal state made up of regions, but they were operating under post-war assumptions of Keynesianism, welfare states, and things like that. The EU's only the shape it is because of its its relationship to capitalism and its relationship to the capitalist ruling classes in each national government. Yeah. They've voted for this. Mm. It's one of the things that They don't really get, like, the EU now has its own momentum, Mm. has its own kind of independent government that feels that they are more European than of one particular country, one particular polity. Um, This wasn't always the case. The Council of Europe, which was Mm. before the Treaty of Maastricht, I think, um, the thing that proposed EU law was the Council of Europe, which is the head of government, ...of every EU country. Hmm. So it's like, for na- now, it would be May, Merkel, Macron, all that lot. Hmm. Like, they're the ones who decide what EU law gets put f- before the Parliament. The Parliament just votes on it. Yeah, They're not the one, you know, they're the ones who actually think it up. Um, so, yeah, on the, on the inside, the EU looks like a state now, by now, hmm. um, looks like a state... Um, it has its yeah, EU Commission, which is like its second chamber. It has a parliament. It has the Court of Justice. It has the central bank. They all look as if they belong in kind of a, a state apparatus.
2: Yeah.
0: Um, the Court of Justice, European Court of Justice, ruled as early as 1964 that European law overrides national law, which was eventually put into practice by the time of the Single European Act. Um, decisive legislative power, as we've mentioned, is vested in the Council of Ministers, which is composed of national governments and policies decided um, at the European Council, the Council of Europe, as we mm-hmm. say. Um, these are neoliberal instruments by now of governmental control on behalf of an increasingly international ruling class, not by some long term plan of some like, diabolical cabal of you know, Marxists and. Cultural Marxists. Cultural Marxists and, yeah, race, race traitors or whatever. Yeah. Um, so what we're left with now, as part of its recovery from World War Two, Germany, as well as the Netherlands and Austria, developed a very, very aggressive export policy while this is all going on. Yeah. So they need to climb out of the, the wreckage of World War Two. Yep. They need to start producing things and selling things. Um, it increased its exports, particularly in the EU and the Eurozone, by reducing workers' wages. There's something like... Um, I think it was something like 37% of German workers are on a wage that's less than £10 an hour. Jesus. Like, it's a huge amount. You would not think it. of all the propaganda that comes out of Germany. You think of well-paid workers, strong yeah. unions, the kind of good old social democratic stuff. Yeah. They are very, very but underpaid.
1: Like our friend who used to work in Germany, they had like yeah. workers' councils. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. They have that, but in increasing places, it's, it's the same stuff that you get here, which is low wages and um, bad working conditions. Mm. You know? So they're able to um, reduce workers' wages, which means that the price of their products can drop mm. and you can make more profit. Um, so its competitiveness increases compared with its EU partners, particularly countries such as Greece, Spain, Portugal, uh, Romania, Bulgaria and Hungary, when they weren't part of the EU, um, were other particular markets that it exported to. Okay, um, Those other countries have... By then, have a trade deficit. This is after obviously the the Soviet Union's fallen, and those countries are open to trade. Um, The ideology of the time means that they're desperate to kind of become integrated with the capitalist system,
1: so they'll just accept. They don't want those horrible Russian cars. They want
0: yeah, they want like fancy uh, Messerschmitts. (laughs) Fancy Messerschmitts (laughs) riding all over (laughs) the Hungarian countryside. (laughs) Um, So. They're importing a load of stuff yeah. and they're not able to export because their industrial base is in the ground because it's been bought out and it's been they don't um, have sold off. Fa- they don't have Fanta factories. Uh, yeah, exactly. Um, so these, if they've got these trade deficits, mm. they either get made up by um, foreign investment, which is another country, a co- co- com- look, another country's company, coming in and investing money and actually putting money into a factory, which then provides jobs and provides mm. a tax base in order for the government to kind of equalise this trade deficit. It then exports yeah. goods. That's the theory. That's the capitalist theory of how things should work. The other way that these deficits can be kind of squared off is if you get loads and loads of loans from banks for hmm. all the promise, the crazy promises that your government has made Yeah. Um, to fund pensions and uh, unemployment benefit and medical systems and things like that. Um, there's a kind of common myth that this is all in the purview of the government. That if the government didn't promise those unemployment benefits and sickness and sickness benefits and healthcare yeah. systems, that somehow it would be easier. But actually, for trade deficits, it doesn't really matter whether it's a public or a private one. It all mm. it all goes into the same kind of. Well,
1: it's all in the same pot. It's really
0: all it's sticking. all kind of in the same in the same pot. Yeah. It's not any better or worse if it's a public or private deficit. Um, so these like deficits end up getting financed end of course because they can't fill them in by foreign investment because nobody's building you know factories of any kind of great profitability in Romania. Mm. Um, these deficits end up getting financed by loans from the banks of those those same countries that are causing the trade deficit in the first yeah. place. Germany, Austria. So Germany starts giving big debts, Italy,
1: big loans to the G- Greeks.
0: German banks, yes, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, they can't make their money back because any corporations that do invest in the company with their new free trade and neoliberalized economies, the corporations operating across the borders, again, mm. remember, single market and all that, all of these corporations operating across borders take their profits out of the country and take it back to their head office, whether it's in Luxembourg or, or wherever it happens to be. So that money isn't getting spent in the country no. that the products are actually being produced in. Um, the low tax regimes encouraged by the major countries also mean that they attract the head offices of these countries. It's why everywhere's uh, headquartered in Luxembourg. Yeah, you know. Um, so basically, Germany's bourgeois Z by now has an incredibly strong position by being super cheap and yeah. directing its exports at poorer countries within the EU. They haven't. They do export. Um, in a, to, to other countries but they have a, a special advantage when they're exporting to other countries of the EU because those countries can't stop their, their products coming in mm. if they're super cheap and you've got a toilet paper factory in Germany and a toilet paper factory in Romania the Germans are that strong economically that they can just make their toilet paper super fucking cheap mm. and that doesn't matter whether it's like a prison buying it for its, um, a Romanian prison say buying mm. it for its inmates or a company importing German toilet paper in order to sell it in a shop yeah, like they can't. Like those deficits are the same thing. Yeah, still there. It, it still represents a capital outflow from the country. Hmm. Money going yeah. out.
1: Yeah, like um, I've, I'm sure I've read stuff about that's kind of why the poorer parts of America are, are still the same poor parts as they were after the Civil War. Uh, yes, because yeah, yeah they were treated. In because the same they way. they
0: buy things, they still need those same things, hmm. but they haven't got the industrial capacity to produce them for themselves. But they have a kind of what I mean in capitalist theory. It's division of labor, where you, supposedly you most efficient you build you make the thing in the place where it's able to make it most efficiently, and you make that one thing. Yeah. You know, um, in theory, that means every area should have its own thing that it makes and exports. But of course, the world's not like that. It's no, no. good making steel in a place that doesn't have any coal. Yeah, you know, or. Making any industrial product in a place that doesn't have a history of industrialization.
1: yeah, you it's can't like in the build middle up of factories
0: Wisconsin. Out, yeah. yeah. Um, so ultimately, it means that these smaller countries aren't able to compete with the larger countries. Yeah. Uh, the companies of the private sectors have contracted debts with the ba- uh, of the private sectors. Of these smaller countries have contracted debts with the banks of the larger countries, um, and whenever. The time comes in to call these debts and you have a debt crisis like you had in um, uh, Greece. The agents that then administer that debt, if the government is not able to pay, are the same people who caused the debt in the first place. Yeah. They're the In this case, they're the agents of German banks. Hmm. Um, so yeah, it's a fully kind of,
1: and it's a thing that you can't really get out of.
0: No, you cannot. You're get trapped in this yeah. downward spiral. Um, the addition of the European Central Bank as well means that you cannot affect your currency in a way that will make it easier for you to pay your debts. Yeah, in you euros, can't devalue it, which has been a, um, a tactic of governments in hmm. part in the past when they've had their own their own currency. Hmm. Um, but yeah, like these these countries will like. These banks in Germany will, like, yank up the interest rates yeah. on these loans. So um, Germany, France and Austria, for instance, borrow about 2%, lend to countries like Greece at 5.2% so that Greece can then cover their debt obligations. Mm. This is really, really profitable for those German, French and Austrian banks. Yep. Um, and the money lent to Greece by the banks that they are obliged to use by the EU, They're, they have to use those banks... Mm. Um, is paid back to other private banks in the same core, in, yeah. this, in the same major countries, at interest rates of like ten percent. So mm. somebody somewhere is making huge amounts of capital off what are very very serious like national crises, yeah. like, as we saw in in Greece. Yeah. Um, and all of this, all of this kind of debt that comes out and the austerity that comes in, the saying you've got to tighten your belts, you can't afford mm. to pay the same kind of benefits that you did before, you can't afford to play pay unemployment benefits and things like that. The things the agents, the actual people who administer this on the ground, are those as I say, those same bank personnel. They're the they're the neoliberal experts. Yeah. The ones who move from, say, being head of mergers and acquisitions at Deutsche Bank and move into a position at the European Central Bank or with the European Parliament. And they're the ones who are sent out the technocrats. Yeah. That's who we mean by, by technocrats. Um Kind of sounds like a conspiracy theory, except that it's imperialism.
1: Yeah, it's just it's just straight old empire. It's it's but yes. instead of it being you know we subjugated them with guns with guns we subjugated them. Well, Germany subjugated Greece with Fanta
0: mm. and Mercedes cheap uh, a cheap Fanta and easy credit mm. before the the bubble burst the mm. property bubble burst. Um, yeah, they in, in the past these countries would have been called core and periphery countries. Like you have mm. the core countries that um, administer all the um kind of debt relief and, and things like that, and periphery countries that exist as sources of raw materials and primary resources and things like that. Um, and yeah, you kind of you kind of go along with all this stuff about like the EU having its own anthem and its own flag and all of the kind of cultural baggage that goes mm. on that kind of seems to echo what we said at the beginning about a a cabal of kind of pan-Europeanists wanting people people, the people of Europe to come together as a brotherhood and Hmm. you know whatever I just think that that's kind of frosting it's the same thing that like Theresa May does when she says she wants a red, white, and blue Brexit.
2: Yeah. It's
0: that kind of faux patriotic pandering. Not too heavy. She never goes too nationalistic, mm. but she goes just nationalistic to get everybody a bit stirred up. Yeah. But also that kind of sinking feeling that she's just lying and just pandering to you, you know? Yeah. Um I feel like the all the EU stuff about that is like that, but possibly even weaker, because every now and again there's some like crazy story about like, we're gonna make Ode to Joy the uh, anthem of the European Union. Yeah. It's like no one's serious about it. It's just a cultural mm. plaster, a cultural band aid yeah. over the fact that this, the reality of the relationship between countries in the EU is exploitative. Yeah, because capitalism is exploitative.
2: Yeah.
0: Um. Yeah. So, like, just to wrap up with Brexit, mm. um, the British response to this has kind of baffled a lot of people. A lot of people don't know where they stand because. Everything we've described up until now has been fucking horrible, exploitative, and sounds terrible.
1: But realistically to the capitalist ruling class of Britain, that's all. Mm. That's in their wheelhouse.
0: It's what they want it's the what they want to do to their national population. Like yeah. it's two flavours it's two slightly different flavours mm. of the same thing. Mm. Um I think like the big difference is like so you remember the kind of Arthur, what was his name? Arthur uh, Lord Cockfield. Yeah. He was a businessman, he was a banker, and he owned a, a national business. You think you think of like um you, you think about what was considered to be like a successful business owner hmm. or whatever in the sixties. You're thinking of like an old white man hmm. who has had a factory and it's been in his family for generations. Hmm. Um, they make one particular like industrial gun widget. Yeah, they're like they manufacture a series of tiny screws. Yeah, and the people who've worked there are the families of people who've worked in that locale for generations, with increasing or decreasing levels of of exploitation and things like that. Hmm. Moving and shifting with the kind of how far, how how ready trade union, how many concessions trade unions had won on their behalf, right? So yeah. they're fixed in place almost. So you then think of a success what would be considered a successful businessman in the '80s and you 've got like a manager a high up manager in an international conglomerate that might not even make anything yeah. they might just transfer services if they 're mm. in a like a a financial services job they might not ever deal with anything they might not ever need to deal with people they 're just dealing with numbers, mm. which is kind of what you end up with the with the eu you know yeah. uh, it 's kind of what you end up with brexit that a lot of the prominent Brexiteers, like, I mean, t- uh, Tim, uh, Tim Martin, uh, Nigel Farage to a certain extent represents that, the kind of old fashioned businessman. It's the, the tendency he's appealing to. Hmm. He's appealing to national business owners, small business owners, yeah. who all their business is done in one country, and they want to, they feel both at the same time that they could, com- they could compete better. With their products abroad, if they didn't have to go through the EU in order to negotiate deals, hmm. and also, they feel that the what remains of the social democratic protections of the EU hamper them in yeah. gr- in exploiting their workers more.
1: Basically, he wants um, Weatherspoon's guy wants to pay his workers less, mm. and he's sick of the EU telling him to clean his pipes.
0: Yeah, yeah.
1: And we'll see what happens after Brexit when your <laughs> pipe is. Really cloudy gives you the shit that is given to you by a person who doesn't can't afford to buy shoes.
0: <laughs> it helps if you think of it as it's two shards of the ruling class with two different visions, two different yet ultimately exploitative visions of capitalism. Yeah. Um, obviously, there's been a lot in that that I couldn't, I just couldn't wait through it. I my first draft of like my thoughts on the EU was like fucking. Uh, five to seven thousand words. It's fucking ridiculous. Yeah. It's way too huge a topic, but that's kind of like how I've tried to explain how, maybe how, give you a starting point to how you should feel about the EU. And, at and the conclusion
1: is back off Brussels, leave our bananas alone. Uh, yeah.
0: <laughs> Straight bananas all the way. Wait, no, hang on. Straight... Square bananas. I want square, square bananas. Square bananas, square they melons. Stackable bananas.
1: Yeah. <laughs> I want a stackable banana. more efficient that way. It yeah. is. Incredibly efficient. <laughs> but yeah, that's. I hope we have elucidated you.
0: Yeah, hope that's like helps you helps you out. I mean, obviously, look that if people want to respond to on Twitter that I've missed something out, like I absolutely have. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Yeah. Um, um, anything you think about, just let me know, and like maybe we'll cover it in another episode. Hmm. Maybe. Um, <laughs> Sick
2: and
1: of next you. episode. I'll probably come back saying, "Do you know what's really nice, Edinburgh?" Um, or the weather will be really shitty, like it's saying is, and I'll come back and I will say, do you know what's really depressing? Scotland. We could probably Scotland do a
0: huge cultural Marxism segment.
1: <laughs> I could probably come back just on a, Edinburgh with a lot of things about yeah. what I saw, and I can tell you exactly who the BBC or Channel Four are going to be giving series to, <laughs> because it will probably be. I'm just going to go on out on a limb here. It will be a, a six-part series given to a young rich girl who's yep. just done her first one-hour-long play, and then the TV series will come out. And people will be flabbergasted that <laughs> it feels like one hour's worth of information smeared over six episodes, like
0: Fleabag. That's an incredible prediction. <laughs> it's an incredibly accurate.
1: One. It's not my first radio. Oh, the
0: travails <laughs> of the petty bourgeois. <laughs>
1: not petty bourgeois. My wife is. <laughs> I'm just like a leech. Riding her coattails to the my l- fancy falafel
0: stand in Edinburgh. The lumpen husband. Yeah, we just go along with it. It's
1: <laughs> about right, actually.
2: <laughs>
0: All right, yeah. Um, so yeah, that's that's the end of this episode. Um, as usual, you can subscribe to us on iTunes. Um, follow us at WDTATW underscore podcast, hmm. um, and you can follow me at bmbergamo or follow Hugh at Tanner Smashing. Leave us a review, as I said, if you've got any questions, thoughts, suggestions, anything like that. Let us know by any of those means. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Alright. Cheers. Bye. I
3: love my country indeed I do but all oh, that war has made me blue I like fighting, that's my name, but fighting am the least about the fighting Mr. Hoover said to cut my dinner down. I never even hesitate, I never brown. I cut my sugar, I cut my coal, but now they dug deep in my soul. I've got the blue, I've got the blue, I've got the Blue, I've got the blue, since the amputated my foot. The alcoholic fluke, no more beer, my heart to cheer. goodbye whiskey, you used to make me frisky.